Welcome to a special mini-series of Innovate at Open, the podcast that explores open source through the lenses of distributed collaboration, collective invention, and technology creation. In this mini-series, we'll consider the question of, was open source inevitable, and what that tells us about software's past and future. I'm your host, Gordon Half, Technology Evangelist at Red Hat. In the last episode, we considered some of the aspects of open source's rise that were probably inevitable. Open source has been shaped by certain large technology and economic tides, such as the advance of microprocessors, that seem likely to have been inevitable, even if the exact timing and details were not. Similarly, some level of sharing and collaboration has happened throughout human history and carried forward to the development of computers even before there was an industry as such. Finally, the Internet was the product of developments happening in many different places, especially in the U.S. and Europe. While there were some specific seminal events and inventions, and we could debate some technical and governance specifics, it's hard to see a worldwide network for data transmission not coming into existence. We also heard the barest sketch of a complex history of Unix and open source software that can, and indeed has, filled books. But let's get to the counterfactuals, starting with Unix. Was this operating system that's so intertwined with the history of open source inevitable, or at least something like it, whether from AT&T's Bell Labs, where Unix was burst, or elsewhere? One relevant question to ask is where Unix fit within the development of operating systems generally. Was it an outlier or a logical progression? Here's what Stephen Weber wrote in his book, The Success of Open Source. Quote, If a computer could multitask for one user, there is no reason why it could not multitask for many users. This realization was the genesis of time sharing. The concept was simple though writing the software to implement it was not. The MIT Computation Center developed one of the first systems, CTSS, in the early 1960s. CTSS could host about 30 users at one time, each connected to the computer by a modem. In 1964, researchers at MIT began a joint project with colleagues at Bell Labs and General Electric, to build a second-generation time-sharing system called Multics. The Multics project was too ambitious for the state of technology at the time. It did not help that three project collaborators had different goals for the system, and they were hamstrung by an awkward structure for decision-making. The project quickly ran into severe problems. In the spring of 1969, Bell Labs announced it was withdrawing from Multics. Bell Labs has spent substantial resources on the project, and its failure left behind the strong management bias against research on operating systems. Ken Thompson and Dennis Ritchie, two ambitious Bell researchers on the Multics project, were left with little direction and even less enthusiasm in the organization for their work. But Ritchie and Thompson along with several colleagues, 
felt they'd learned important lessons from the Multics experiment, lessons that could be used in architecting a new and simpler operating system, end quote. Weber goes on to describe how, in the summer of 1969, Ken Thompson took advantage of a quiet four weeks while his wife took their new baby to visit the grandparents in California to write an operating system for a PDP-7, one of a new class of relatively low-cost computers. The PDP line was developed by Digital Equipment Corporation, colloquially DAC. Thompson named his rudimentary operating system, UNICS, Uniplexed Information and Computing Services, an intentional pun on Multics. This would later morph into the familiar UNIX, Unix. Because these mini-computers were less powerful than the big systems of the time, and because Thompson was working quickly, he had to, as Dennis Ritchie, the creator of the C programming language, subsequently told it, quote, build small, neat things instead of grandiose ones, unquote. Thus, we can perhaps sum things up by observing that while Unix had its roots in pre-existing operating system research, it was born of a different design philosophy. Furthermore, as we heard previously, Unix was rewritten in the early 1970s in Ritchie's C programming language. This new version of Unix, created by Thompson, Ritchie, and others, could be modified to work on other machines relatively easily. That is, it was portable. This was truly unusual for a time when the norm was to write a new operating system instead of supporting utilities and application software for each new hardware platform. It was thus, in important ways, an operating system for a new era. It should also be evident from the Unix origin story that its creation at that specific time and place was at least somewhat serendipitous, a skunkworks project of sorts at a rather unique organization, Bell Labs. Had something broken, the seemingly fragile chain of events that led to Unix, might something like Unix have never come into existence or come into existence much later? My colleague and co-author, Red Hat Distinguished Engineer, William Henry, argues that an operating system, like Unix, quote, born for the network, unquote, will have happened anyway. It gets back to that spirit of collaboration and the understanding. Now, you could argue whether it was going to be Unix or something like it or not, but I think that the people involved back then all understood the inevitability of a net, more networked environment for a start, right? And that, uh, and therefore security would need to have to come into it. And I think that's where, as I said to you before, how I felt like Windows failed in that Windows was a personal computer operating system that everybody tried to tag networking on to with, with things like NT and all that sort of stuff. And so it became this sort of, horrible mess of a personal operating system trying to be networked and therefore was always going to be doomed with sort of security flaws and issues and blue screens of death and all that sort of stuff. Whereas Unix was coming out of this 
I, I, we understand there's a network coming, like a, a universal one, something that's big, where we're going to be sharing with people that we don't always collaborate with every day. And that was happening in the, uh, the educational sort of community, right? So I think that something was inevitable because there was so co- much collaboration. It, it, it was the, the hackers. It was the idea that almost everyone was a hacker, right? They were all hackers back then. Everyone was trying to get things done. Everybody was trying to work together. People were trying to collaborate. Yes, there might have been forces in the commercial side that were trying to keep things siloed and all that, but the pressure of the people that involved the types of minds that were being attracted to the environment were were people that wanted to to hack more, to share more, to show off more maybe and say, hey, look what I've done. Oh, wow, you've done that. Well, let me add to that. And so in some way that was going to bubble up into something anyway. Again, it may not have been Unix Linux, but we were just fortunate that that was our, maybe we would never know what the alternative was and maybe it was better, uh, but it certainly wasn't Windows. Uh, the The point is, is that I think that spirit of international collaboration was already happening at the time. There was great minds looking at this all over the world, people jumping on it. Uh, the new, the network was there. New security was going to be there as an issue once you bring that network into it. Dave Neary, with the Open Source Program Office at Red Hat, agrees. He argues that something in the Unix vein will have come together in some form or other. It was Unix inevitable. I think that's, I would say that at some point, some kind of uh, academia-initiated collaborative open source collaborative operating system was inevitable. That was something that had been happening already since the 60s. It's possible to imagine, perhaps, that a mini-computer company like DEC could have filled a void left by an absent Unix by opening up one of their operating systems, perhaps a legacy one in some form and to some degree. But anyone deeply familiar with the history and the culture of the mini-computer would have trouble making that leap. The mini-computer was too siloed, too proprietary, and too apart from the proto-standards emerging on the ARPANET, the Internet's predecessor. Consider how, during this same era, Data General, the mini-computer maker that was the subject of Tracy Kidder's Soul of a New Machine, lost a U.S. Court of Appeals ruling for refusing to even license one of its by then older operating systems to run on a competitor's hardware. It's hard to see DEC or Data General or one of their competitors not viewing open source even in the most diluted form as several breaches too far. But let's stipulate that there's a Unix or something that looks a lot like Unix in important ways, including adherence to open standards. We tend to think of open source and open standards as joined at the hip, Today, we often even talk about taking an open-source code-first approach to standards, but it doesn't have to be that way. As my colleague, Red Hat Chief Security Architect Mike Purcell puts it, Standards are easier if if you think of the world in open-source, but you don't have to do it that way. You can have closed-source around standards. But even the availability of system code 
doesn't automatically lead to any sort of a free software movement. Which brings us to our next query. How important was Richard Stallman and the free software movement to where open source is today? In the 1980s, the computer industry was commercializing in ways that were increasingly eroding some of the sharing ethos that had pervaded the field since the beginning in many places. As we heard in the last episode, one of those places was the MIT AI Lab, where the formation of two commercial Lisp companies, Symbolics and Lisp Machines, Inc., had ended up a messy and acrimonious process that had led to much reduced open collaboration and widespread departures from the lab. Richard Stallman was part of the lab community and had previously written the widely used Emacs editing program. Stallman's experiences with the effects of proprietary code in the Symbolics versus LMI war led him to decide to develop a free and portable operating system. His work in the GNU project would be instrumental in Linus Torvald's ability to assemble a complete operating system around the kernel that he wrote. But equally important were the principles, and perhaps the license, that Stallman wrapped around the code. From Dave Neary's perspective, today's open source success can be directly traced back to Stallman's actions. What if Richard Stallman had not been at the AI lab? Or what if the the particular printer software that that is the you know the the kind of the kickoff point for the free software movement, what if that had not been proprietary at that time? You know, five years later, would things have been different? That's that's one of the ones that I think is particularly interesting think about. There is, a, there is a general tendency to collaborate on uh, software, particularly in the academic bound, in the academic area. But I think I am really kind of, as a political rather than as a technical movement, the idea of uh, copyleft and the GPL uh, really for me is made the, the collaborative creation of software Something like almost a political act. It it turned it from something which was very very niche into a, a small but growing movement. And I think absent the GPL, I don't know if any of the BSD projects would have gone mainstream in the 1990s the way the way Linux did. I'm not sure. And it it is worth thinking that you know absent the GNU and the Free Software Foundation, we had SendMail. Uh, with the University of Washington license, which was not free software, but uh, but which was you know clearly very uh, very popular. We had Pine, we had DNS, um, Bind, uh, all of the backbone software of the of the internet uh, was you know free software, open source. Uh, so there was certainly you know there was certainly a place for open source without the GPL. My question is, would it have grown to the commercial success that we see today? I'm not sure. Richard Fontana, a lawyer at Red Hat who specializes in open source legal issues, also argues that Stallman and the Free Software Foundation likely influenced how open source played out. 
especially insofar as copyleft and GNU were something of political acts, and their absence may have resulted in a rather different landscape. You know, one of the key developments historically was was Richard Stallman's decision to start the GNU project and, and his invention of the copyleft policy as implemented in the GPL. I mean, this had a obviously a far-reaching effect on the development of open source and eventually Linux and uh, open source licensing, of course. This this decision, this this invention of, of copyleft to some degree wa- was based on another development in the law, which was uh, after shortly after it became clear that software was copyrightable, there were uh, court cases that concluded in the U.S. and I, I assume in other countries as well that object code was copyrightable. So prior to that time, there was some doubt about whether even if source code was copyrightable, whether you could actually enforce a copyright as against um, a transformation of source code into object code. And that was kind of settled by the early 1980s in the U.S., just around the same time as Stallman starts the GNU project and a couple of years before he kind of formulates copyleft. So, so if he hadn't come around uh, and, and done that, would we, you know, I think we, so we already had the beginnings of what we'd call permissive licenses by that time, or we would, you know, shortly after that time uh, in the 1980s. Um, in a world without the GPL, a world where Richard Stallman doesn't get involved in starting the GNU project and, and doesn't think about licenses, uh, there's no free software foundation, perhaps. He doesn't set up the free software foundation. If, if none of those things happen, we still very well might have permissive licenses, because we did have permissive licenses. And uh, they might become, you know, what open source licenses are to the exclusion of of copyleft licenses. I think there would have been, in that case, there would have been perhaps some, you know, sort of void, political void, if you will, or cultural void that would have been filled by something else. So perhaps we would have seen a more vibrant community develop in the 1980s and 1990s around software licenses that prohibited commercial, uh, commercial use. There were always licenses like that. There was, um, you know, in the 1980s, 1990s, there were small communities formed around um, software under licenses that prohibited commercial use. Um, I understand that in, in some portions of the gaming community, there were sort of software uh, sharing communities built around uh, uh, sort of non, non-commercial licenses. So, so it's kind of easy to imagine some of the some of the energy that that ended up kind of going in the the direction and support of the GNU project projects like GCC and then later on Linux when 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 Linus Torvalds decides to adopt uh, the GPL for Linux maybe some of that energy is sort of redirected to communities with you know anti-commercial sort of attitudes because there 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 was a kind of anti-commercial sentiment that Stallman was kind of responding to and that the, the early um, kind of enthusiasts around GPL license software were responding to, d- despite the fact that, you know, Stallman himself made clear that, uh, you know, free software was compatible with, with commercialization. So that, that kind of um, positive view of commercialization of free software maybe was not, was not inevitable or, or would have been sort of limited to the kind of permissive license context. We might have had a lot more sort of, um, you know, maybe, maybe, maybe more of a mixed 
permissive license, and then, you know, proprietary ecosystem corresponding to what we actually see today. And maybe that's not so different from where we ended up today, uh, you know, given that there, there is this view that, you know, the, the GPL has become somewhat obsolete because of its model of uh, a kind of object code distribution trigger, um, you know, in a world where, where um, software as a service, service and, and cloud and, and web are sort of the dominant, uh, you know, modes of, of interaction and, and software delivery, uh, a kind of object code distribution-based model is not, you know, not, not as kind of, you know, pertinent. And, and that, that's one of the reasons why people have spoken of uh, there being a kind of decline in copyleft or co- decline in interest in copyleft over the past um, eight or eight or nine years. So, um, you know, maybe, maybe that's uh, relevant as, as well. We'll return to the topic of commercialization in a couple episodes. But for this one, we'll stay in the theme of how the legal system and open source have intersected over time. We'll get to the broader legal context in a moment, but before we take leave of Richard Stallman and the Free Software Foundation entirely, it's worth re-emphasizing that it was really Stallman who elevated licenses to be an essential component of what would become open source software. It wasn't that there weren't permissive licenses, BSD had one. But they existed for practical reasons, and their early history in particular had an element of happenstance. Consider how the X Consortium, or X11 license, which would become the MIT license and other popular permissive license, came about. Project Athena was a joint project of MIT, DEC, and IBM to produce a campus-wide distributed computing environment for educational use. Launched in 1983, it gave rise to important software that would end up being used broadly, including the X-Window system and Kerberos. X was originally under a proprietary license, but according to Keith Packard, one of the project's participants, what we would now call an open source license was added to X version 6 in 1985. According to another participant, Jim Geddes, quote, distributing X under license became enough of a pain that I argued we should just give it away, unquote. However, it turned out that just placing it into the public domain wasn't an option. Quote, IBM would not touch public domain code, anything without a specific license. We went to the MIT lawyers to craft text to explicitly make it available for any purpose. I think Jerry Saltzer probably did the text with them. I remember approving of the result, unquote, Gettys added. There's some ambiguity about when the early license language stabilized. As Geddes writes, quote, we weren't very consistent on wording, unquote. While the GPL went through changes over time as well, it was always intended to embody a specific set of principles implemented through a license. It wasn't created just because some license was needed. 
The focus the GPL brought to using licenses as a tool still has ramifications today, which we see, for example, in ongoing arguments about using ethical licenses to enforce who may use a given open source project. Open source lawyer and co-founder of Tidelift, Luis Vila. If Richard doesn't hate his, you know, if Richard rolls out of bed that day and doesn't need to print anything, I wonder if some of this ethical uh, stuff doesn't come up earlier, right? Um, Because uh, forget about the day he rolled out of bed and said he didn't uh, like his printer. What about the day that he rolled out of bed and said, actually, ethical restrictions on software are bad, right? This, some of this discussion might have happened a lot earlier. Uh, Somebody... Somebody pointed out to me this morning, and it was a great insight, that uh, for years we said that licenses were the only acceptable way to, to legislate behavior. We, didn't, we, we said that we didn't like codes of conduct. We said we didn't like kicking people out of our communities. And so we left ourselves with only licensing as the tool. And I think to some extent that's an artifact of Richard and the FSF. And, and as, my, as whoever was it pointed that out to me this morning, that's not necessarily a healthy one, right? We have really lashed ourselves to the mast of licensing. And, you know, maybe we wouldn't be having so many of these discussions today if we'd said, hey, codes of conduct are also important and how we behave with each other as peers and friends and, and human beings. If we'd, if we'd extracted that from the licenses earlier, maybe we wouldn't be having the, some of the arguments that we're having today. But let's step back. What about the legal foundations on which software licenses rest? Software licenses assume that software is copyrightable, that it can be owned. This is something that we take for granted today, but there was a period during which this wasn't at all clear. This question was only settled when the U.S. Congress explicitly granted copyright protection to computer programs in 1980. Various court decisions provided additional clarification. Richard Fontana again on how copyright developed and how things might be different for open source had software never become subject to copyright. Software as a a kind of product of human ingenuity got going during a time period when the sort of legal status of software was very unclear. If there was any sort of consensus, it was that software was a thing that wasn't susceptible to being owned. It wasn't a form of property. Um, Although the reality is like almost from the beginning, the situation was more, you know, confusing than that, that may sound. It was just, just not, not very clear. There were differing viewpoints, um, about the legal situation and about sort of the whether it would be good policy or not for for the legal system to allow software to be something that you can own and and for you know for business related reasons the the question was for a long time not super critical because there wasn't a a software industry as such. And, and the part of the complexity also is that it was changes in the law, particularly around copyright law, which, which to some degree enabled the development of a, of a software industry that was separate from the, uh, the hardware industry. So there's sort of a chicken and egg uh, issue here as, as with some of the other issues around this, this overall 
question. A key development was that in the late 1970s, certainly by 1980, it's clear in the United States and other countries that that software uh, source code, at least, is is something that you can have copyright on, and therefore, if you develop software, it's something you can own, and if you can own it, then you can license it, and if you can license it, you can make money from controlling the scarcity. And that, uh, as you know, happened after a long period of time when there where was uh, collaboration in communities of among communities of, of uh, programmers, not 1990s, 2000s, let alone 2000s era style collaboration, but but collaboration nonetheless across different you know institutions, universities, and and um, industry labs and so forth. And so you know we often think of, of open source as, as coming out of this this kind of conflict that arose when um, the legal system recognized as copyrightable something that had been treated by software professionals as something that was outside the scope of property or, or ownership. And, and that conflict, it, it, among other things, led to the invention of what we'd now call open source licenses in, in all their different varieties. If you can imagine a world where software never became susceptible to copyright, I think it's interesting to, to ask whether we nonetheless have something that looks like, you know, open source and open source development today. I think, I think we might, and and that's because I think in the end, I'm not sure, you know, in a world without software copyright, what is the legal obstacle to collaboration? You know, we can talk about patents being a potential obstacle, uh, but but you know, leaving aside patents, uh, I, I don't. You know, open source licensing is, is uh, as my colleague Scott Peterson likes to say, is is something that helps get copyright out of the way to make collaboration possible. If, if copyright isn't in the way to begin with, then you don't need anything that you know looks like open source licenses. Maybe maybe open source licenses develop anyway to kind of promote certain other types of policies. It's not kind of clear how effective they would be. Like maybe they'd be more like what we now have in open source projects around codes of conduct, maybe maybe sort of aspirational policy statements that don't have much binding effect, and in the end aren't really necessary to kind of um, promote collaboration. This wraps up episode two of Was Open Source Inevitable? We'll continue with our counterfactuals in the next and penultimate episode of this series. We'll first consider what might have happened had Linus Torvalds decided to take up ice sculpture instead of writing Linux. Then we'll consider whether Microsoft could reasonably have played its hand differently to parlay its dominance on the desktop together with Windows NT into a position that stopped or co-opted open source. Thank you for listening to this episode of Innovate at Open. For future episodes, subscribe to Innovate at Open on your favorite podcast app. You can also go bitmason, B-I-T-M-A-S-O-N, dot blogspot.com for show notes, blogs, and a full archive of episodes and more. 
Thank you for listening. This is Gordon Half, Technology Evangelist at Red Hat.